Welcome to the Life Story Coach Podcast, where you'll hear interviews, tips, and advice on the craft and business of personal history and life story writing with your host, Amy Woods Butler. Hello, listeners. On this episode, we're going to go back to Lisa Kagan, and we're going to listen to the very first part of my interview with her. So last time, we you heard the second part of my conversation, and I wanted to do that because she had a retreat coming up, and I wanted to give everybody ample time to sign up for that retreat if they were interested. Today, you'll be hearing what she and I sat down and spoke about that has more to do with her life story business and less to do with the retreats and the workshops. I hope you enjoy it. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm so happy to have you here. I have you've been on my radar for a while, um, mostly because I've seen posts about your retreats and your workshops. Um, but before we get into that, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started? Well, it all started when I was studying art and writing in college, and I had the chance to do a family migration stories project about my own life, and I did a project about my grandfather's immigration from Russia when he was a young child due to religious persecution. And it was a story that I knew nothing about previous to this project. And I had the chance to interview my dad and also listen to audio recordings that my uncle had done with my grandfather before he passed away. And combining those materials and family photographs and historic photographs, I was basically able to write and illustrate his immigration story. Through that, it completely changed my own perspective on my life, on where I had come from, on my own family. And I realized that probably a lot of people don't know these stories uh, about their own families. And so once I had finished it, um, people kept asking me if I could help them do this for their family. And so that planted the seed for the idea that would go on to eventually become Family Heirloom Arts. So what I'm curious about, because you know, you have this list of services that you provide, and many of them are things that all of us provide, but then you have the the art also in there. And what I'm wondering is, does the art come first, or do the does writing the family stories come first, or do they really mesh together? And is there some some place that they overlap in your business? Sure. So I would say in relation to my my work in terms of getting into this, I've always been fascinated with telling stories, both visually and, you know, through writing, through a written form, and kind of the intersection between visual and written narratives. And so in my own personal art practice, I've always incorporated lots of personal photographs and family photographs, maps and material in, you know, exploring to make sense of, of my own life. And in doing that, um, I've brought that into both the, the workshops and retreats that I offer to the community, but also to my clients. And so usually the, the process, um, the, the clients will, will let me know if they are really excited about creating visual material for their book. And sometimes they'll come and work with me in one-on-one -on -one sessions and I'll teach them the process of how to incorporate reproductions of personal photographs. Um, combined with other reproductions of letters and maps and that type of thing. Okay, wait, wait. I'm going to stop you right there because I, I want to yes. clarify this a little bit in my head. So these are clients that are coming to you because they want 
to have your service as a per- as a personal historian, um, but then you're bringing them into the whole creative process of what the actual book is going to look like and the the artwork in the book. Is that right? Yes. So I guess it can work two two different ways. Um, one way is that people contact me; they want to record their family stories, and we start with the project planning. We start with oral history interviews and then go from there in terms of the transcription and the writing. And then when we get to the visual component of the book where we're figuring out how we want to illustrate the the narrative that we've created, the written narrative that is created based on the oral history interviews that we've done, at that point, some people will ask me to create custom illustrations for their book, which will incorporate reproductions of their personal photographs and material. Other people will actually want to come to my studio and learn how to make these illustrations themselves. And then we will use scans of their illustrations um, to be included in, in their book. I love that. I have not heard of anybody else doing that. And so they are not only giving their voice to the book and their stories, obviously, but there's this whole other strand of creativity that I'm sure makes them feel very um, um, empowered and really owning their stories in a special way, um, a deeper way than somebody who is who is strictly sitting there and telling their story to somebody and then letting that, you know, letting that personal historian um go off and write it for them. But they're actually tapping into their own visual creativity to add more depth to the pages. Exactly. And for some people who are not inclined in that direction, I still give them an an avenue in which to participate in the visual process for the book, um, even if they're not the ones actually making the art or creating the photo essays. And so sometimes I will ask them questions to give me some ideas in relation to creating a custom piece of art for their book that could relate to, you know, what emotions were evoked by that experience or that time period, or, you know, how do you feel when you see these photographs of the three generations of women in your family together, just as an example. And so even if they're not physically making the art, they are engaging in a reflective process around the visual materials of their book. And then based on, um, their responses and reflections, I I take their ideas and emotions and I incorporate them into the art or the photo essays that I create for them. That sounds like a fascinating process. Now, because art is so very subjective, sure. um, do people always love what you create for them? Is there mm-hmm. is there modifications that you have to make? Um, what does that even look like? Great question. So I would say that, you know, most people who want me to make custom art for their book will have looked at my portfolio and have a sense of, you know, the style that I bring to it and will decide that it resonates with them. And of course they might ask for some changes or modifications, um, but they will, they kind of know that, that they're giving me some creative license to, to create something for their book. For the people who are looking for something that's maybe a little bit more traditional we will often create photo montages or when I say photo essays, they could be just straight photographs that are presented in the book, but they're presented to tell the visual story, which I know a lot of us do. Um, so they're very, you know, thoughtfully um, edited and organized in that way. So 
usually people can kind of mix and match or pick from the visual options for their book. So if they're looking for something more traditional, they'll probably do photo montages, which might be a collection of straight photographs that have not been altered, but that are combined in a way to elicit a certain feeling or represent a certain time period. Um, but they are not, they don't include drawing and, and painting and cutting and gluing and all of that. Um, so it's, I think people have a variety of options to choose from and that kind of meets the needs of, you know, cause art is very subjective and what people respond to visually is very subjective. And so I follow their lead in that way. Not everybody who hires me to create an illustrated heirloom book chooses for me to create illustrations or decides to create illustrations with me that will be included. Um, some of them are drawn to the visual quality of the books, even if they don't include hand-done artwork, um, but are drawn to the, the way the photographs are are organized and represented and used to tell the visual story. And that's a, a little bit more of a traditional approach. Well, I have to say that I was very late in the game to recognize the importance of the visual element in these books. Um, I just, I think mostly because I'm not a very visual person myself and I don't, you know, books that I'm reading on my own, you know, just, just for pleasure. Sure. Um, I, I don't care what the books look like at all. Um, it's all about the text and the words. And that's, you know, I, I kind of staunchly believed in that. Um, the first quite a few first several years that I was in business doing this. And it wasn't until I started seeing some samples of books that other personal historians had done. And then actually, when I spoke with Don Don Rude um, of Modern Heirloom Books, um, she came out of the world of magazine publishing. Mm-hmm. And so she has very strong visual element in her books. And it and so for the past few years, I've been um, having the design incorporate much more of a visual element. And it's striking how people respond to it. I mean, they, the, the story still carries the, so the text still carries the story. Um, and that's still the main element, but boy, people just really, um, gravitate towards the, the, the graphic elements and the color, um, and, you know, the photos, but photos that maybe have background stripped out. So they, you know, they look more interesting on the pages. And now you're taking it a whole nother level up in creating, I, I mean, we talk about illustrated books, but yours have actual illustrations. So like artistic illustrations. And I love that. It sounds like it speaks to the heart of the people in more ways than just a straight up life story would. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for those of us that are inclined towards visual art, it does, we do connect visually in a way that's that's different than how we connect with, with our words or with reading, um, reading something. And so it allows just another avenue for people to connect to their memories and their stories. There's also the benefit, I think, of the intergenerational appeal of the projects, whereas younger children um, who might not sit or be able to read a full life story or family family storybook can immediately jump into the visual storytelling component. Um, mm-hmm. Plus, I think pulling all the old photographs out of the closet or out of the box and bringing them back to life is has a has a strong therapeutic value for the client because there there can be a feeling of of course of loss when people have passed away, but another layer of it when they're 
those photographs of the people that they treasure are just like buried in a box somewhere. And so that aspect is also powerful, whatever the end product is, I think of, of really feeling the strength of the visual representation of, of, of the, the people in their story, the people in their lives. And sometimes too, there's like an ancestral picture of someone that the narrator, you know, the person I'm interviewing for the project has never even met, but they see themselves reflected back in the face of that ancestor. And so I think there's, there's a generational bridge um, that can be strengthened through the visual aspect of the project as well. Mm. Um, and, and, and also that, that grandchildren can sometimes see a picture of themselves in a finished published book and it immediately makes them feel like they're, they're part of it, that this is, they're connected. This is part, part of their family. This is part of their story. And I know some people will come to me and say, I don't know who's going to be interested in this, you know, when we finish it, or I don't know if my family's going to want to read this. And I've seen it so many times where people pick it up, they see a reflection of themselves, like the younger generations, and they jump right in, you know, so it's like opening another door. That's how I think of it. Right. Well, and I love the the term that you use that you're bringing these photos back to life. So the photo, the older photos that have been stashed away, um, because that that is you're you're giving them a new life. You're giving them um, some purpose. Like again, I, I mm-hmm. suppose. So um, when I was looking on your website, you have some really nice samples of books. And for all of our listeners, I recommend that you that you do v- visit the website, the Family Heirloom Arts website, um, and click on some of these samples of the books that you've done. One thing that struck me was on your copyright page, uh, you're not the only one listed, right? It's not a Lisa Kagan um, production. You always have a writer listed, text editor, copy editor. So there's various roles that um, are assigned to different people. So can you talk a little bit about that, that collaborative process of working with other people? Sure. So when I first got into this, I did do pretty much everything myself, as I think most of us do often. Um, and I quickly realized that that in my case, at least limited what I, the projects I could take on and how, you know, whether or not I could use my specialty skills to their fullest potential when I was also trying to do things that maybe I wasn't as good at just to kind of keep it all in house. And so through joining um, the association of personal historians, which I know is no longer active. And then getting really involved in um, helping to start our, our local chapter, the, the Portland chapter of the personal historians organization, um, which now we call personal historians Northwest. I met so many wonderful colleagues who were working in this field um, doing related work. Many of them had their own businesses, either doing full scale projects like these or doing a specialty part of the, pro- of the process. And so I kind of gradually realized that collaborating was not only added more another dynamic element to the process of creating these books, but it allowed me to focus more on the project design and management, the conceptual part of developing the project. I do pretty much, I do a majority of the direct client work. So I'm doing the, the, all the meetings with the families. I'm doing all the oral history interviews. I'm doing a bulk of the writing, um, which comes, you know, in part from the transcripts of the interviews. And I am doing the, um, you know, a good portion of the visual conceptualization for the project and the design and oversight of production. But 
I have a wonderful team of contractors that I work with who do the transcription work, who do the photo restoration work and any other type of like digital artistry that we need. I have uh, a wonderful woman named Emily Garcia, who we've been collaborating for years on um, the design part of it. She's wonderful with. Oh, um, I've seen some yeah. of her work. It is gorgeous. Yeah. Yes. She's, she's wonderful with everything, but she's wonderful with um, her sense of fonts and, you know, this, the spacing and the, the, the pacing of the book and all of those things. And so we've been collaborating for years on the books and that's a wonderful collaboration. She's also great at production oversight and the, the physical mechanics of creating a finished book that that's beautiful and archival and all of those things. So I have a genealogist that I collaborate with when families want additional genealogy work. So that's why when you look at the credits page, you see all of these different people listed. Um, I have proofreader that I work with. And so it's, it's mainly around the production aspect of the work that I, I tend to do the collaboration as well as, you know, of course, like the transcription and some of those early pieces that we need to develop the manuscript. And then I also, I just say I collaborate with the clients too, that I give them as much agency as they would like in terms of um, writing and editing and whatever role they want to take on. And so I always try to credit all of their roles in the, in the credits page as well. Um, now, do you find that the storytellers very often want to get involved with the writing process or the editing process? Because <laughs> on my end, and I, don't, I don't know if, um, you know, it's just the kind of clients that I attract, but uh, usually they are, they want nothing to do with the writing <laughs> at all. Um, and they will do corrections on, you know, the hard drafts that I give them for corrections, but it's, it's not editing at all. It's really just, you know, fixing things that I misheard or, 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 you know, facts that got out of order or things like that? Sure. Well, in my case, it might, maybe it's a little different in terms of who I'm connecting with in the community and who's, who my clients are in the sense that because my background is in creative writing and fine art, I have a lot of people in the arts community here in Portland, Oregon, that, um, that I'm connected with personally and creatively and professionally. And so a number of those people end up becoming my clients and some of them are writers or they are artists and they may not either know how or be inclined to create their own fam illustrated family heirloom book from start to finish by themselves, but they are bringing um, their own creative skills to this. And I would say maybe it's maybe not quite 50, 50, but I would say at least a third of my clients probably identify as being writers or artists in some way. And usually whatever they're drawn to, they will, they will contribute or collaborate with me um, in those areas. So um, that, that may relate to just how my business has grown or just through, you know, the, the ways that I've connected with people in the community. I'm also part of an organization called um, Portland women writers. And I know we'll talk about that a bit later, but both as a writer, I participate in their programs, but I also lead uh, workshops and retreats um, through through that organization and in collaboration with um, Don Thompson, who runs the, that organization. And so I'd say it's typically women, maybe 40s to 70s or 80s who participate in their programs. And I have collaborated with a number of women um, as clients as well, who are very drawn to writing their own stories. Um, so they do bring that to our client work as well. Well, and that's a wonderful service because like you said, um, there's 
going to be probably a lot of people who like to do some writing or like to do some of the visual artwork. Um, but as you and I both know, and probably all of our listeners know, it's 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 a hard thing to get a book from beginning to end, you know, to, to start a book, finish it, get it produced. So you are, you're helping them along the way. And I think that's wonderful. I, um, that's one of my goals actually for this. I think of it as the upcoming year because I still Mm -hmm. think of in terms of school years. So (laughs) my my year is about to start, but that's one of my goals is to have more projects where, um, they are collaborative with the storyteller or possibly with somebody, the storyteller's family. Um, because I think it's just, you touch a little bit about this on this um, in your website, just about the transformative power of telling our stories and reminiscing. And we all know that, like all of us who have done this for a living, we understand and recognize that transformative power when we start sitting down and having the interviews with people. And I think you and I spoke briefly about this before, the clients don't know that, or the storytellers don't know that going into it in general. Right. They think, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to have a book at the end. And I know that I've addressed this on the website or on the podcast before, but it's still something that um, is just always in my mind. Like, how can how can we deliver that message before they're in the chair, before they've decided to plunk down a, a sizable investment to hire us to come and record their stories and then create a book for them? How can we give them that message that, you know, it's not once you get into this, your focus isn't going to be nearly so much on the finished project as it is telling your stories and getting, and in your case, I assume, getting involved in the process of creating this life story, right? On a, um, a, getting their hands dirty, right? Um, and, and actually jumping in on the creative side of things. And I think that usually when people meet me, whether it's they come for, you know, a free initial consultation, if they're interested in possibly doing a book, or if we meet out in the community, I, I really do try to stress the importance of the process aspect. I mean, I have always been really interested in process arts. And I'm a member of the International Expressive Arts Therapy Association. And just the the fact that, that there is something that tra- is transformative when you jump in and kind of get into the creative flow of, of your life and um, your memories and all of those things. And I think people are can be hungry for that, whether or not they identify as artists or writers, but for somebody to hold space for them um, where they can feel safe and comfortable and explore a little bit or get lost in their reflections and not have to be, um, you know, so in control of everything or have it all planned out. Of course, these books require a huge amount of um, planning and structure. Um, but within that, I feel like there's a lot of room for, um, for exploration too. And there's also the aspect, I think, of connection where, you know, people can, in general can feel isolated for different reasons in their life. Um, but also those of us that do personal history work or are writers or artists end up doing a lot of the work alone. And there's a part of that that I love just because you get into your own creative flow. But I think whether it's through collaborating with the contractors that I work with or collaborating with my clients that I recognize a lot of times the clients don't want the project to end because they're enjoying the collaboration they're enjoying the connection part of it. And so, you know, especially because we tend to work with a lot of people who maybe have retired or maybe are in a place where they're not engaged in the outside world in the same way that maybe they used to be, that that this process offers um, 
it offers like that outlet for feedback and connection, which I feel like can't be underestimated. (laughs) I agree. I agree. (laughs) I've recognized that um, for my, my own work um, environment, I need to bring in more people. I do some collaboration, um, but the majority of my time is spent alone in front of my computer. And, And that is why I have started doing some writing workshops. Now, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that. But before we skip over to that subject, going back to your collaborators, um, I'm just curious because you said that you do most of the client-facing work, so the the interviews, and then you said you also do the bulk of the writing. I've noticed in a number of your books, you have it writer-credited, and you also have a text editor and a copy editor um, and a proofreader. So I think we all know what proofreaders do and probably copy editors as well. But what is that distinction between the writer and the text editor? It depends on the project and on all the variables. But if I'm at a place where I have worked directly with the client to do the interviews and to um, then write the narrative based on the interviews and then go back and forth with the client to get their edits and approval, I often, before we proofread for errors and that type of thing, will want a fresh set of eyes to also do some editing because I'm so close to the work and so are my clients that not all projects have a budget that can handle that um, extra step. But sometimes I will ask um, one of my contractors to do a mix of kind of text editing and proofreading at the stage when we're finishing a manuscript before we go into layout and design. And that often just whether it's, you know, noticing word repetition or streamlining some things or saying, Hey, this part really doesn't make a lot of sense or could, it be clarified, um, while also correcting maybe grammatical errors or typos, that type of thing, um, that it can just strengthen the overall narrative. And this is especially true for projects that are really long, um, that pull from a mixture of like historical or genealogy research from interviews, especially when I've interviewed multiple family members. So there's like multiple narrative voices woven together and, you know, you're spanning sometimes many hundreds of years in the narrative in terms of old ancestral stories and history and then more contemporary narratives um, or things that are really like research, like dense in terms of pulling from names and places and facts from, you know, that there's just so much there that it's hard to be the interviewer and the writer and then feel like it's always ready to go straight to proofreading. Mm -hmm. And I think for those bigger projects, the client knows it's going to be a bigger investment of both time and money, and it's going to happen over a longer period of time. And those tend to be the projects where we're able to have an external text editor. When I say external, somebody who wasn't involved in the interview process or the, you know, the first draft writing process come in. Um, And then we always do proofreading at the very end once everything has been laid out and designed and is ready to go to press, because of course we can always introduce other errors when we're adding a lot of visual elements and moving things around. Um, And so that other fresh set of eyes. So sometimes I'll have two different proofreaders or editors working on the same project at different stages in the process. That would be a beneficial thing for all of us to consider to have a text editor to have and not even necessarily like a, you know, real deep dive developmental editor, but somebody to look over the the draft um, before, slightly before it's considered a finished draft. And one of the reasons that I see for that is that 
I'm not sure how we can get better unless we're getting some feedback from somebody. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to get the kind of feedback from the client, from the storyteller that is going to make you a better life story writer. Um, because in in general, they're not going to be writers. Um, I, I guess that's, you know, maybe not quite the case in with with some of your clients, but in general, they're, you know, this is their story. And as long as you tell it well, um, they're going to be happy. But sure. one of the things that I've been concerned about, because I've been doing this for almost a decade now, is how do I know that I'm getting better each year, that I'm mm-hmm. that I'm improving my skills? And if you do work with somebody as a text editor, editor you're going to see their feedback and you're going to see probably mistakes, patterns of mistakes that, that often crop up in your writing. So I think that's really a good advice um, for for all of us to follow if the if the budget allows for that. Sure. So you said that your it sounds like your project projects um, they're all completely custom made and um, probably no one looks like any other. How do you present that in your sales meeting with with the clients? Do you charge by the hour? Do you have package prices? How you structure that, especially knowing that you bring in contract workers? Okay, so. Typically, when I meet with the clients, um, you know, I do a free initial like hour consultation, and I show them a lot of examples. Um, If I'm able to meet with them in person, they'll come to my studio in Portland, Oregon. If they're in the region, we'll typically meet in person. Obviously, if they're not local, then we'll review my online portfolio over the phone while, you know, answering their questions and explaining the process to them. Um, So I usually... Well, in those early stages of discussion, we'll ask them to look at some of the samples and just let me know if what resonates with them, what what doesn't, what they're not drawn to, um, if any of the samples kind of speak to what they were imagining for their project. Some people have no idea, and they might just pick something up and be like, "Oh, I really like this one." And then I'll ask, uh-huh. you know, "Why do you why do you like it?" or "What you know what are you drawn to?" Um, so even though they are all custom. Um, People, if they see a certain um, design style or font or color usage, that type of thing in some of the samples, of course, we can always bring that into their book. So if you were to look through the samples, you might see some aspects of similarities. Um, I think mainly because I think a lot of us end up working with content that has a historical component to it um, that's not always all contemporary. And so aesthetically, there's that, you know, more historical or, quote, timeless quality that that comes into some of the design. So you might see some similarities in those ways. In terms of the pricing, I usually, without getting into all the details, present to them that, you know, the smaller scale projects or the projects where they're bringing me an existing manuscript and want it edited and designed, we're still looking at, you know, anywhere between 100 to 300 hours on their project. And we do bill hourly. And, you know, there's certain contract services that have their own rates. And so when we do a contract, I'll list, you know, what the rate is for photo restoration per image or what the transcription rate is per um, recorded minute. So there's some of that that I give them. And then the rest of it, like all the other bulk, like the services that we offer um, are all under the same hourly rate. And so they, they're kind of getting, they're getting an all in one where they're coming here. And I know a lot of other um, people in this field offer that and they can get all of these services or any combination of the services. And so however long it takes to complete their project is what it's going to cost them. Um, for the larger projects that happen over multiple years, we could be looking at six or 700 hours that could go into the project over 
a two to four year period. Um, but, you know, regardless of what people's budget is, I also always try to help them identify ways they can contribute to the process that we talked about the value of their contribution and their engagement in that way, but also financially, some people might have big visions, but they don't have the resources to do a whole project start to finish that's, you know, as custom as we offer. And so we'll pick parts of it that they really can't do themselves and we'll do those parts for them and they will contribute in, in a way that they know how. So I don't know if that, that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? I really like your idea of giving them total number of hours because what I've, you know, and I've, <laughs> I switch it up all the time how I'm presenting this. Sure. And, you know, um, generally I, I tell people what my hourly rate is and that means nothing to them. And then I'll tell them, you know, per interview hour, it might be, you know, however many hours it takes behind the scenes to deal with the um, the actual interview, um, you know, including the transcript and the editing and the writing and everything. But people don't usually multiply that in their heads, you know. So, so to actually say, you know, here's my hourly rate, and a smaller project might be, I think you said two to three hundred hours. A larger project might be seven upward of seven hundred hours. I think that's a great way to present it. I've toyed with the idea of having a per interview hour flat rate. Mm -hmm. But then, um, you know, like we're talking about, you don't know how much extra is going to be going into that. So like one clear example is if if somebody has a lot of extra resource material that they want you to add in to weave into the story. So if you have a flat rate for an interview hour, uh, you you might just lose your shirt because then you realize that there's boxes and boxes of old documents that they want you to include in the actual narrative. So I, I like your approach um, and I might have to steal it. <laughs> yeah, well, I would, I would love it if you did. I feel like the benefit of doing it this way for me, and you know, maybe I did kind of pull this a little bit from the graphic design world or something where like people, I mean, this is, this is a little different, but like I say that in the sense that, you know, if people are doing graphic design for commercial purposes, people expect to pay a lot per hour, right? Or maybe they have a a project estimate they would give for the overall project. But I have just found that I can't provide custom services to multiple clients at one time without it being hourly and without them going into it, knowing the rough amount of hours that the range of hours that we're talking about, because which I know we're going to talk about in a minute, the workshops and retreats that I offer are are much more affordable because the structure is totally different and maybe the duration of the time frame is totally different. And of course, the, the product is different too. We're going to talk about that. But um, I feel like you know people know to some degree, I guess, what they're getting into in the sense that they, they come to us because they want it to be custom because they hmm. they want what we have to offer. And if it's not a good fit, then I'm happy to refer people, but I don't want them to get into it thinking it's going to be, it's going to be a different way. You know, it's going to be a certain flat rate or something like that. Cause I just can't provide the quality that they're seeing in examples if it's not structured at, at an hourly basis, because people always have things they want to add. They always have questions. They always have changes. And I just haven't figured out a way to a- account for that by giving them a flat rate to begin with. Right. And it allows room for the project to grow with the client or the storyteller still owning the budget, right? right? So they they can decide if they want to let it grow or not. And I think that's one of the biggest advantages of having the hourly rate, um, because so often they don't know at all 
how much they want to talk or how long, Mm -hmm. you know, how many stories they want to share. And this gives them that opportunity to continue or to say, no, we're, we're done. And we need to, you know, we need to actually go into production with the book. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And that does it for part two of our interview with Lisa Kagan. Now, again, I flip-flopped the episodes so that we could hear about her retreat, which is happening in the middle of September of 2019. So I wanted to play that part first. Um, But really, what you heard today was the very first part of what she and I sat down and spoke about. I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope you found some things that you can bring back to your business and help it grow and help get out there and serve more people. As always, thanks for listening. And until next time, go out and save someone's story.